The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Well, I just saw the latest polling numbers and it doesn't look good. Maybe I should drop out before we waste any more money. That's not the attitude of a winner. Eric, let's face it, there's no way to turn these polling numbers around by the election. You disappoint me. You know Wick disappointed me. I have been spending my days cleaning up a mess he should have handled. But now we've worked things out. Haven't we, Wick? Let's get something straight. I don't back losers. Polls are meaningless. After today, you'll be the only candidate anyone can vote for. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 14, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show on this wonderful Valentine's Day in London, Ontario. And, of course, 519-661-3600 is always a number you can reach us at, or you can email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. As many of you have been doing, and we still have some catching up to do, we admit. <laughs> but we'll get to that on a show in the not-too-distant future. Today, I guess, our we've got a couple of themes, a little bit... Are they related to each other, or maybe not? We don't even know yet, really, do we, Robert? Everything we do is related, well, Bob. <laughs> you're, you're talking about cargo cult freedom in the last half of the show. Yep. Um, Want to give us a tiny hint? Oh, actually, it was, it's part of a speech I gave uh, a few months back, and uh, I thought I'd revamp it, considering some recent changes in the news. It's about uh, the veneer of freedom. Ah, those, like phony front kind of countries. Yes. <laughs> like you think you can go to Florida and drive around and now you need some more more <laughs> registration. <laughs> yes, another license. Right. Jeez. Well, today I am going to be talking about, um, you know, we always talk about people having a right to an opinion. I'm becoming convinced that maybe not everyone's entitled to an opinion. <laughs> and I'm saying that a little facetiously. Entitled but, to versus a right to. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to talk about an alarming trend in the media that I've only become sort of recently acutely aware of, especially since I started reading Ann Coulter's recent book uh, called Mugged, which um, I may get more into detail on that book in the future. That's not what I'm going to talk about today. But I think it's a more blatant trend than we realize, both here and south of the border. And that is, if I can put it loosely, um, political activists and politicians posing as members of the Fourth Estate kind of pretending like they're journalists, even though they might be a journalist in some extent, I don't know. But in the world of the fourth estate, I kind of think of, you know, editorialists, journalists, reporters, writers, editors, columnists, and activists, unfortunately, posing as any or all of the above, and turning what should be a respectable calling into a spectacle calling. And that's what a lot of what we read in the newspapers is. It's just spectacle. It's not information. It's not valuable. And quite frankly, I think it's starting to get harmful. Despicable. Despicable. 
In the field of the fourth estate, the media, the press, you know, these should be respected and honored positions within society. Why do I say this? Because the public, informing the public will and exercising the democratic process, requires a free and objective source of vital information from the media upon which to base its opinions, whether it's correct or incorrect. Error is not a crime. Happens all the time. But misdirection, fraud, innuendo, and foggy gossip come darn close to being a crime, Robert. I don't know. Uh, You know, last week you reviewed what we called the nature of the beast, the nature of what drives most of the identifiably evil trends in politics and culture. But little did I realize that columnist Warren Kinsella, this guy who's in the free press every week, would be uh, this week's local poster boy for what you talked about last week. Power for power's sake. Londoners, you know, are exposed to Kinsella's rants, I have to call him that, in the pages of the London Free Press. And he's part of the Sun News chain. Uh, Why is he there? Uh, To use a favorite phrase of Kinsella's, hard to say, nobody's talking. (laughs) Warren Kinsella, Robert, is the Ellsworth to Huey from Ayn Rand's novel The Fountainhead. If she wrote that character to epitomize anyone, it's this guy. He's the kind of, um, I guess you want to call him a journalist, a columnist, that's what he calls himself, a columnist. Is uh, This guy does not want you to know things, and more importantly, he doesn't want to know things himself, because otherwise you'd have to admit to him. He's an activist, he's, he's an adjutant, he seems to be a destroyer of values, a very angry and misdirected person. Now... This guy prides himself, judging by his media press kit, get this, as the prince of darkness of Canadian politics. I think that's an apt description Uh, of uh, him. Yeah, and well, he was described as that, and now he uses it, and he enjoys it. It's in the first sentence of his covering promo letter, a copy of which was received by this station, CHRW, and this show specifically, just right back on October of 2012. And it included a reproduction from the pages of the Ottawa Citizen, dated September 5th, or 25th, 05, where we are informed that, quote, Kinsella's backroom Machiavellian tactics won him the title of, Prince, of the Prince of Darkness. And it's all very punk. Punk being a state of being in which people achieve goals and get the job done in an outrageous way. Or maybe just a mean, petty, vindictive way. Whatever. There are no rules. It's total anarchy, man. End quote. That's a quote from Kinsella. From uh, the Ottawa Citizen and his, you know, talking about his punk music. That's also a reference to his punk music. He's into punk music, too. And so is described and self-described, yes, the man who worked for John Cretchen's Liberals, Ontario's Dalton McGinty, Michael Ignatieff, and, of course, today's liberal Justin Trudeau. Liberals one and all, and as anti-intellectual and, and, and taking as anti-amoral approach as you can take to, to politics. So it certainly came as a dubious honor to us, I think, Robert, that this prince of darkness of Canadian politics, uh, a man who's the advisor of the likes of Cretchen, McGinty, Ignatieff, and Trudeau, should not only once but twice turn his darkly attentions towards this show, just right within the period of a few weeks at the end of the last year. Yes, it's true. We never mentioned it before and may never have mentioned it, but for an editorial by Kinsella that appeared in the Free Press this past Monday on the 11th, which I will get to, but not till after our first break. The first time, of course, uh, that we heard from Kinsella was the aforementioned media 
release kit, which, by the way, was accompanied by his book. You've got to see a copy of it there by Random House Canada, Fight the Right, it's called, cover price $22.95, and it bears a subtitle, A Manual for Surviving the Coming Conservative Apocalypse. I think that's twenty two ninety five too much. <laughs> well, no, that's what that's what um, he has to pay you to take it. Uh, I have no idea whatever Kinsella might mean by conservative or apocalypse. His description of massive government bailouts as being a hallmark of modern capitalism, as is described on page one eighty one, is so out of focus and ungrounded in real terms. And the whole book is full of mixed terminology like that. It leaves no possibility for rational discussion, which is, I think, the aim of all princes of the dark, to make sure there's no rational discussion. I mean, if ca- just that one word, what that destroys. If capitalism is about government and about government bailouts, then what does he call the economic system where there are no government bailouts? What does he call a system where people and businesses go bankrupt when their enterprises fail? What do you call the economic system where businesses and people profit without government intervention in bailouts. You know, kill the word, kill the concept. There is no word or concept left for this if we now call capitalism government bailouts. Yeah, right? You know, when I skim th- through this book, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to read, but I would liken this book to a Jackson Pollock painting. Meaning? It's sheer gobbledygook. Um, when, when you don't, when you redefine terms like capitalism... And to make them something 180 degrees opposed to what, for example, capitalism is, you cannot read the book. Now You don't know. It's a different language. Well, you can if words don't mean that much to you and you're attaching an emotion to them. I think you can't say that it's a stupid book. I think it's a calculated book. I think that it, 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 it is serving a function and a purpose that the author intends. In, uh, just like you said, yeah. with Ellsworth Toohey. Yes. Ellsworth Toohey was, of course, the... The Machiavellian scheme. We'll be hearing from him a little later. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is purposeful concept obliteration to prevent the possibility of thinking. Without the mind's units of measurements, which are language, being crystal clear with such compl- you know, complex concepts, you just can't have a discussion or, or any sort of rational discourse. Now, for those still in doubt, just in case you're wondering, capitalism is the economic system that separates economic decision-making from the state, not from governance or from government, or, yeah, or from government, but, uh, you know, no forcing people to do business together, as with government monopolies, no using force to prevent people from doing business together, as with government monopolies or trade restrictions. So that's part of the Kinsella Prince of Darkness game plan, destroy these high-def comp- concepts. You know, that's what I call them, high-def concepts, like capitalism. But that's only the level at which the Prince of Darkness operates. Where do the backroom Machiavellian tactics fit in? Well, that brings us to the second time that our show crossed paths with Kinsella. Regular visitors to Five Feet of Fury and to Blazing Cat Fur will already be aware of this Just Right story because that's the only place it's been published before. Back on December 5th, one day before female co-hosts Mary Lou Ambrosio and Kathy Shadle appeared right here on Just Right in conjunction with the station's Women's Voices theme of the day, they replaced Robert and I for the day, the Prince of Darkness, Warren Kinsella, actually had the temerity to write the station management here at CHRW to ask whether the station had, quote, researched Kathy Shadle's published statements before making the offer, having her appear on the station. 
without citing any specifics or even hinting at what he might be talking about, Kinsella cryptically asked, Are you concerned that giving her a platform could cause the station problems, particularly with respect to licensing? And then he prefaced his email with, I'm a newspaper columnist, and I'm quite interested in your decision to broadcast Kathy Shadel on your station, and ended with, I look forward to your response. In that response from the station, Kinsella was informed that it was you and I, Robert, who invited Shadle to guest host. And yes, indeed, we did research Shadle's background, which is why she appeared on the show, not only the second time, but the first time, which was a couple of years earlier. And both, uh, both uh, Kathy and Mary Lou did a fantastic yes. job. And in the context of this show, it should be noted, you know, that Shadle was originally part of that small group of notorious free speech advocates who were all having problems with the human rights commissions of various uh, Canadian jurisdictions, including McLean's Magazine, um, Ezra Levant, Anne Coulter, and Kathy Shadle herself. All of them, Levant, Coulter, and Shadle, appeared on this show just right in connection with those events. You can hear them all online at www.justrightmedia.org. In, ad- in addition to all of them, Mary Lou Ambrosio, on behalf of the International Free Press Society, not only brought Ann Coulter th- to this campus and to this show here on uh, Coulter's Canadian Tour, but on another occasion pulled together Ezra Levant, Kathy Shadle, Professor Christopher Essex, who wrote Taken by Storm, and of course uh, Professor Salim Mansour to the former IMAX theater there at the Western Fair a couple of years ago and filled a place to capacity. We covered that event on this show as well. And of course, Lord Christopher Monckton was another right-wing Margaret Thatcher type that uh, Mary Lou and that group brought to our attention, along with Christopher Essex. So, you know, for the uninitiated, I guess Kathy Shadle might be considered or described a little bit as Canada's own Ann Coulter. <laughs> Could you say that a bit? And on this show... Both Shadle and Coulter let us ask them whatever we wanted to. You know, they didn't say, oh, you can't ask me that. And sometimes we agreed and sometimes we didn't. I remember, Robert, you had to break me and Ann Coulter up when we were going to it on that abortion issue for a minute or two. (laughs) But no matter the degree of passion, uh, disagreement or debate, it was always cordial and above board, if not downright fun from, you know, from time to time. But, you know, Kinsella's tactic with respect to his approach to Shadle's co-host appearance on this show was not only none of his business, he wasn't invited, but was in his own words, quote, just mean, petty, vindictive, whatever, there are no rules, it's total anarchy, man, okay? I don't know about you, Robert, but journalists don't do that. Journalists compete, journalists disagree with, they argue with, they support different parties than each other, and on and on. They even call each other names. That's okay. But no journalist I ever know knew, did what Kinsella did. You know, just to have someone else's right-wing voice denied an opportunity to be heard. And with no foreknowledge even of what that person might be talking about. And, you know, speaking of background checks and research on past published statements on the part of, uh, you know, a so-called journalist, just Google and check out Kinsella's own blog and other related sites. Oh, my God, what you'll find is outrageous. Unbelievable that anyone would hire that guy. I never quite understood the true nature, you know, of Ayn Rand's character Ellsworth Tahui in The Fountainhead until I found myself constantly exposed to Warren Kinsella's columns in the free press. So what we're about to hear as we go to this break is Ellsworth Tahui from that movie, The Fountainhead, who explains and executes the tactic he uses as a columnist and opinion shaper to destroy and to harm those whose accomplishments and characters just tower above him. And when we return, 
We'll take a look at that uh, London Free Press column of this past Monday that made me sit up and take notice, and we'll see how that does the very same thing. Be back right after this. Who designed Cortland? Let me alone. It's too late, Peter. Let me go. Who designed Cortland? Why do you want to kill Rourke? I don't want to kill him. I want him in jail, behind bars, locked, strapped, beaten. He'll move as he's told. He'll work as he's told. He'll obey. He'll take orders. Ellsworth! What are you after? Power. What do you think is power? Whips, guns, money? You can't turn men into slaves unless you break their spirit, kill their capacity to think and act on their own, tie them together, teach them to conform, to unite, to agree, to obey. That makes one neck ready for one leash. Ellsworth. <laughs> You've heard me preaching it for years, but you didn't have the wits to know what you were hearing. Why do you suppose I denounced greatness and praised mediocrities like you? Great men can't be ruled. Why did I preach self-sacrifice? If you kill a man's sense of personal value, he'll submit. Can you do that to Howard Rourke? No? Then don't ask me why I want to destroy him. <laughs> That's what they mean, your noble ideals. You believed in me. Well, what's left of you now? Come on. Who designed Cortland? Howard Rourke. On what condition? That it must be built as he designed it. Write it down. Write a full confession. You're a great success, Peter. You're my best achievement. The totally selfless man. shelter, effort is being wasted to erect a structural monstrosity known as the Enright House. It is designed by one Howard Rourke, an incompetent amateur who has the arrogance to hold his own ideas above all rules. You are architects, and you should realize that a man like Howard Rourke is a threat to all of you. The conflict of forms is too great. Can your building stand by the side of his? I believe you understand me, Jim. If you will sign a protest against the Enright House, the banner will be glad to publish it. And we shall win, because there are thousands of us, thousands against one. <laughs> More of it. Look, letters to the editor, thousands of them, all screaming against that Enright house. Ellsworth, you are wonderful. How could you ever foresee a public trend so well? Yeah, how could he ever foresee a public trend so well? Because he created that trend, of course. That's what Dewey's job was. And um, we're talking about uh, Warren Kinsella, who's very much like that character from Ayn Rand's book. And this past Monday, he had an, uh, a, a column, uh, a column, I guess you just call it that, in the London Free Press. <laughs> Can't give it much more of an honor. Um, on February 11th, 13, and it was called Queen's Medals a Disgrace, and it was referring to Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medals uh, that we heard all this kerfuffle about in the city lately, too. And I thought maybe that's what he'd be talking about was the things that we'd heard locally, but that wasn't where he was focused. And um, referring to those medals, Kinsella notes, and which means repeats several times, that the medals are awarded for, quote, significant contributions and achievements, end quote. 
And yes, fear not, he did make mention of London's George Avola, who as former councillor convicted of municipal corruption also got a medal. But Avola was really the only exception to Kinsella's list of offenders, his being based on uh, a criminality conviction, whereas the rest were all just being labeled criminals just for being right wing, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and as if the things to which he objects being done by the right, you know, would, would and are not being done in spades by whatever team Kinsella's on, who knows what that is. And then, you know, he's one of Trudeau's advisors. I don't know what that makes him, some kind of demo-liberal, illiberal, I don't know. He also notes that our right-wing Prime Minister Stephen Harper is the one to ultimately blame for who receives a medal, which apparently includes Harper's campaign manager Jenny Byrne. Kinsella apparently heard some other third party use the term, quote, deceptive, end quote, with robocalls when referring to Jenny Byrne, and he writes, quote, quote, what were Byrne's significant contributions and achievements apart from helping elect her boss? Hard to say. No one's talking, end quote. Well, he just talked. She helped elect her boss. Isn't that an achievement? <laughs> Getting elected isn't easy. We're still working at it sometimes, Robert. You've done it a couple times. <laughs> yeah. And that was an achievement. And I can assure you it is an accomplishment. But why isn't it an accomplishment to Kinsella? Hard to say. No one's talking. Then Kinsella moves on to real women as being a recipient of a box of the medals, objecting because, quote, real women calls the homosexual lobby a threat to Canada, or has called them a threat to Canada. And that's all he says about them. And to which I have to say, well, that's true. The homosexual lobby is a threat to Canada. So is the agricultural lobby. So is the television and radio lobby. So is the lobby for the preservation of heritage buildings. You know, homosexuality, agriculture, TV shows, radio programs, and preserving heritage buildings are not issues in and of themselves. Lobbying for exemptions, privileges, exceptions, affirmative actions, subsidies, trade and license prohibitions, racial status under law. All of these are most definitely beyond mere threats to Canada. They are patently suicidal and destructive to everyone they touch, and they're all based on a fictional group rights delusion. But of course, that's not the only thing Kinsella objects to about real women. Did you know, Robert, that apparently... Real women, formerly, not today when they're being awarded these objectionable medals, but formerly, in the past, they had a director named Rita Ann Hartman. Now, apparently, Rita Ann Hartman's family, and he doesn't say who or how many, quote, had extensive involvement with both the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazi Heritage Front, end quote. <laughs> and end of argument. Well... If Kinsella is looking for any group with extraordinarily deep roots with the Ku Klux Klan, he would have to look no further south than the Democratic Party south of the border, which financed, drove the political will, and fueled the fires of the Ku Klux Klan from day one. That's where the Ku Klux Klan emerged from, was from the Democratic Party. I was aware of that, yeah. yes. You know, Ayn Rand used to rail about this constant evasion of historical record and fact. And for more than, you know... And from, uh, for, sorry, for a more recent perspective on this, you've got to check out Ann Coulter's Mugged, who will enlighten you as always and entertain you on a few of these facts. And more importantly, on people like Kinsella, who masquerade as members of the Fourth Estate. And that's my words and interpretation, not hers. And to wit, he asks, why did real women get medals? Again, who knows? 
And then comes Kinsella's lowest scrape of the barrel, and this is the one that got me because I happen to know more about this. Quote, Gary McHale got one, too, in a ceremony earlier this month in Toronto. McHale is an Ontario anti-native, anti-police extremist who has spent time in jail for his misadventures. What's his significant contribution to Canada? No one knows. No one will say. And that's where he leaves it. I was just, my jaw was sitting there looking at it, turning the pages. Well, where's the rest of this? That's outrageous. Uh, 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 surely the free press didn't let him just print that. But apparently, yes. Now, of course, McHale is no anti-native, nor is he anti-police, never has been. He's been a guest on this show, too. How about that? And we know this for ourselves based on both the words and deeds of Gary McHale many times over. His misadventure, quote-unquote, was being arrested for walking peaceably on a public road in a very Gandhian attempt to bring the plight of Caledonia to the public's attention. Something Kinsella doesn't want. He doesn't want you to know about it. And the implication Kinsella wants to convey is that McHale spent time in jail, quote-unquote, because he was anti-native. Isn't that the impression you get from reading that? You know, people don't understand that anybody can go to jail for any reason or for no reason whatsoever. Well, that's that doesn't not even make the, them a criminal. True, but even so, that's, even to the point that those issues are defined, that's not what happened here. Not even... No, no, it's patently any false... And you're right, I'm, I'm surprised that the uh, Sun Media's lawyers didn't look at that uh, I, I, before. I, but he's doing this it. all the time. And, you know, I guess it's not surprising from a guy who's constantly promoting hate and hatred. Look at his site. The word hate appears all over the place. He hates all sorts of things. He's known for The Web of Hate, which was a book he, he, he promoted. And, you know, he, he puts people on his hate list, of which Kathy Shadle is on there. Number two, uh, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Now... You know, if Kinsella's comment about McHale doesn't qualify as some sort of outright libel and slander, I mean, it's pretty close, too. In the face of clear and demonstrable evidence to the precise opposite of being anti-Native or anti-police, I mean, to the point of where both Natives and police were physically beating him for the crime of walking down the street, he never once raised a finger in self-defense, never said anything against them in that sense. I, I don't know how you can even say anything like that. He, you know, he's covered in Christy Blatchford's book, too. If anybody deserves the Jubilee Medal, it is yes. people like Gary McHale. No kidding. And, you know, isn't that all you need to know about Gary McHale to know why he deserves to get such a medal? Yes. Uh, sounds like a pretty significant achievement to me, you know, beating the likes of the world full of Warren Kinsella's who, who don't want anyone to know what's going on in places like Caledonia. Or about the flagrant disregard of property rights and by the law, by our own tax-financed police. So, I want to know, why doesn't Warren Kinsella illuminate us on the facts before he passes judgment? The judgments always come first, and the, I don't even think he cares about facts. And why does the London Free Press allow such vile and contemptible, you know, pardon me, puke running across its pages? I don't know. No one knows. No one will say, Robert. <laughs> And then he writes, it goes on, separatists, bankers, right-wing lobbyists, murky religious groups aligned with the ruling conservatives, all have received medals for no apparent reason, end quote. Well, that's about the most mindless, I mean, the whole thing was like that, right? It was just a mindless diatribe. Just like, we might as well just say, I hate this person, I hate this person, I hate this person, yeah. <laughs> and list them all, wah, wah, right? It does and, sound like the ramblings of, a, of a, an elementary school bully. Well, 
You know? I think of him as a man-child. I don't know, there's something, yeah. there's something wrong there. Completely anti-intellectual. Very, but I think that's his shtick, and he, th- and he knows it works. And the liberals like it. Mm-hmm. This is what the concern is. I mean, there's a lot of w- wing nuts out there. So why in the world would Sun newspaper, a noted right-wing chain, have him as a columnist? Well, no one knows. No one will say. <laughs> 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 you know... It's really funny, Gary McHale himself, I saw a response by him talking about, well, isn't it interesting how Kinsella doesn't talk about all the Queen's Diamond Jubilee medals handed out by McGinty? And to the left, and to the, it's all the same thing, you know, there's no difference. But uh, Warren doesn't know, Warren doesn't say. And uh, it goes on, you know, Kinsella, more columns, the London Free Press, why? Hard to say, no one's talking. <laughs> if I could say that to everything, I'd be the number one columnist in the country. I'd like to go on, too, but my time is up now for this half hour. So before we break and return, if anyone is wondering what Gary McHale's significant contribution to Canada is all about and what it's got to do with police and with natives, we leave you with Gary McHale himself in conversation with Sun TV's Michael Corrin just this past January. And we'll return after these. In Caledonia, it's not just that the officers stand by and do nothing. They actually engage in criminal behavior. Such as? Well, we uh, had two officers uh, criminally charged because they were helping natives build a barricade. They, they were uh, helping them to build a barricade. It's one thing to stand and do nothing, that's bad enough, but they were helping to build a barricade. Yeah, absolutely, they were helping build, build a why? barricade. Because it's all about appeasement. It's amazing that in seven years, the hundreds of families who have begged the OPP to help them uh, with trespassers, the native protesters, right? And that every single time the OPP say, well, we can't lay a trespassing charge because we don't know who owns the land. But we have four people in court right now charged with trespassing because they walked on provincially owned land. So the law only applies to one group. It doesn't apply to the other group. And the OPP actively engages in supporting one side of the issue. And time and time again, we've had, uh, we had Commissioner Fantino criminally charged, the current Commissioner Chris Lewis, the court ordered him criminally charged for obstructing justice because he was part of a series of emails where he ordered officers to arrest me regardless of the evidence. Where does this come from, from politicians or from the bureaucrats who are generally the, the chiefs of police these days? It starts with both political parties. Uh, both political parties, whether it's uh, conservatives or liberals, are completely brainwashed that they have to do this appeasement. We got to understand that Caledonia is a byproduct of Ipawash. Ipawash, Gwen Boniface, and all the policies, the uh, Aboriginal relations teams within the OPP, the framework which they run all their uh, policies on, was created under Mike Harris and the Conservatives. It was the Conservatives who actually endorsed these things. Now we're now that's why you don't have Tim Hunak coming out and, and condemning with such strength the very policies that he was part of the government at the time. Mm. So he was part of the government that created, uh, that appointed Gwen Boniface Let's and go created beyond the, the, the policing. You, you've had years of experience now dealing with, with various native people. And it seems to me that this is a very, it's, it, it's incredibly difficult to deal with this because there are so many different chiefs. Some of them, again, things that we're not supposed to say on TV, but some of them act like children. They seem to have no idea about the world's realities. I don't, they don't even seem to care about their people. They care about their position within the community. How do you negotiate? Who do you negotiate with? And how can we deal with some of the evidently real problems of genuine suffering? Well, the biggest problem is that the federal and provincial government actually won't declare who they're going to negotiate with. Yeah. Because we have this idea that every native speaks for all native. 
And so that any person that steps forward and says they want to be a spokesperson, Sonny is a spokesperson. In Caledonia, for example, the elected band council has gone to court several times and actually has said in court, there is no land claim. None. And yet, what media outlet actually has reported that in court, the, the elected chiefs have said no, no uh, land claim. Yeah. But you get all the protesters who, who don't follow their own leadership, every single radical person, anyone who wants to step forward, somehow they're portrayed as they speak for, for all Native people. They don't. And the government has to put their foot down and say, look, we've we got to deal with the elected band council. We're a democratic government. We deal with the elected band council. All these other make-believe leaders, the, Harper doesn't negotiate with me. Right? And if they pass a law, I don't have an option to opt out of a law that the government passes. Right. Somehow there's this concept that every Native person independently has a right to say, yeah, the government signed that, but I'm not following it. Mm. My family's not following it. We have to get away from that, ma that mindset that each person on a reserve is an independent, completely their own, like their own nation. Are you going to go back and cause more trouble? Uh, absolutely. We're going to do an announcement uh, next week. We got an hour to go, Doc. How are you feeling? I got a four-alarm hangover, either from the whiskey or your laser beam, or both. But I'm ready to make history. <laughs> Charge Commander Riker. Riker here. We're ready to open the launch door. Go ahead. Oh, look at that. What, you don't have a moon in the 24th century? Sure we do. This looks a lot different. There are 50 million people living on the moon in my time. You see Tycho City, New Berlin, even Lake Armstrong in a day like this. Uh-huh. And you know, Doctor... Please, don't tell me it's all thanks to me. I've heard enough about the great Zephram Cochran. I don't know who writes your history books or where you get your information from, but you people got some pretty funny ideas about me. You all look at me as if I'm some kind of saint or visionary or something. I don't think you're a saint, Doc. But you did have a vision. And now we're sitting in it. You want to know what my vision is? Dollar signs. Money. I didn't build this ship to usher in a new era for humanity. You think I want to go to the stars? I don't even like to fly. I take trains. I built this ship so that I could retire to some tropical island filled with naked women. That's Zephram Cochran. That's his vision. This other guy you keep talking about, this historical figure, I never met him. I can't imagine I ever will. Someone once said, don't try to be a great man, just be a man. Let history make its own judgments. It's rhetorical nonsense. Who said that? You did. Ten years from now. You got 58 minutes, Doc. You better get on that checklist. Money. Money and dollars. It's the root of all good, including warp drive. <laughs> and I believe it's the root of civilization. Civilization, Bob, it's a rare thing. 
And of course, by civilization, I mean a civilized society in which the government respects the citizens and the citizens respect the government. Two-way street. What a rare thing. Mm -hmm. Peace and order are maintained and people's rights are respected and commerce flourishes, money flourishes. In other words, a civilized society is one which has abolished the initiation of force. It's often meant advanced or complex architecture, culture, art, technology, division of labor, trade. But, you know, none of these things could exist without the creation and enforcement of objective laws. And to the degree that such laws recognize the supremacy of the individual over the collective and his concordant individual rights, such a society could be said to be civilized. A nation's aggregate standard of living... The, the ubiquitous access to technology, science, and art are directly proportional, I believe, to and a direct consequence of the degree to which that nation's citizens and their governments respect an individual's personal and economic right and, to put it in economic terms, the degree to which a nation practices capitalism. History is rife with examples of this relationship. Compare, for example, South Korea and North Korea. South Korea, while not perhaps an ideal society, has a government which offers some protection of individual rights, thanks in part to the influence of the United States. Its constitution clearly recognizes many individual rights, including the right to pursue happiness. Believe it or not, that's right in the okay. constitution of South Korea, the right to pursue that's happiness. Amazing. Yeah, There's the influence of the United States for you. Yeah. Israel another country which respects to some degree the inalienable rights of the individual, far surpasses its neighboring countries in standard of living, technological advancements and science. Japan, whose constitution mirrors that of the United States, which, by the way, in effect, effectively imposed it on its defeated foe, has flourished in its corner of the world. Hong Kong is a technological marvel compared to mainland China. It still benefits today from its once British territorial status. Look at any prosperous nation, and behind it you will see, to one degree or another, a free people, a citizenry free to create, invent, and sell their ideas. Most importantly, sell their ideas. A, a people who enjoy the pursuit of profit, benefiting all in the undertaking. There are, however, some nations which, while possessing many of the trappings of freedom, have them despite the fact that their nations are uncivilized, brutish, and barbaric. These nations have the veneer of freedom only, in that many of their citizens enjoy a moderate to good standard of living, drive nice cars, live with modern conveniences, and some even enjoy great wealth. But the truth is that such appearances belie the true philosophy of their governments and their citizens. You only have to consider Saudi Arabia, the Islamist state where wealth abounds, but women and children are treated worse than animals. It's a barbaric society, and yet it's a wealthy society, built on the wealth created, discovered uh, by Britain and the United States and their oil companies. Prior to the discovery of oil there by those entrepreneurs and capitalists, Saudi Arabians were nomadic tribesmen. 
If you were to visit many of the countries in the Middle East, Asia, Africa, for example, you'd see pockets of great wealth, skyscrapers even, luxury automobiles, finely dressed people, and a somewhat decent standard of living. But again, this is a facade of civilization, concealing a subculture of primitive tribalism and brutality. Many of these nations... Is that that by design, or is that a part of an evolution? What do you mean? Well... I mean, everybody has to come from somewhere, and they're not all coming from wealth and working their way down. They're coming from poverty and working their way up. Mm -hmm. Um, Could there be... Like, I know that's not the case looking at the politics in Africa and many of the other countries, but just wondering how much of that might be pockets of good news instead of, you know, know, separate from the rest of the country. Well, I think that people, no matter where they are, and where they live, always try try their best to survive and prosper, despite the barbarity of their their governments. So yeah, there's probably little pockets of that. Unfortunately, in some of these countries, once a little pocket becomes uh, noticed by the government, the government moves in and usually destroys it. Yeah, and the pocket's gone. Yeah. So many of these nations exist in wealth as a result of either the largesse of the truly free nations or because they have the wealth of natural resources. Many of these na- national resources, uh, natural, natural resources discovered and developed, as I said, by people and corporations with roots in the free world. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union tried desperately to apply this veneer of freedom to their international image. I remember reading about how they would paint one sides of buildings on major highways yeah. so that people would driving by there would think that it's actually a prosperous nation. They stole the technology necessary to create nuclear weapons, giving them a false level of respect in the world community. They unsuccessfully tried to copy the U.S.'s space program. They even made what appeared to be, at least from the outside, an exact duplicate of the space shuttle. Their copy was called Buran. It was destroyed in 2002, by the way, when the hangar it was stored in collapsed due to poor maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) The copycats. These nations import the technology developed primarily in the civilized, free world. They are essentially cargo cult cultures who enjoy the trappings of freedom but have no idea as to the philosophic and political requirements necessary to create the wealth wealth they enjoy. They have no idea as to the complex societal conditions necessary to create, not build, but create, such items as automobiles, airplanes, computers, medicines, and skyscrapers. Right. It's not just economics. It goes deeper than that, doesn't it? That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a, it's not that's just, a whole thesis you got going there. It's just not, you know, uh, the movement of money, the, the yeah. mining of minerals. You have to have I the agree. philosophy. I think you're onto something here. Yeah. These people just simply imitate and borrow. And wherever the spark of individual freedom has taken hold in the world, so too has progress taken hold. It's... They go hand in glove. Beside the countries I've already mentioned, there's India, for example, with a 200-year history of British rule. And, of course, South Africa, with similar ties to Britain and Europe. But, by and large, the vast majority of the non-Western world simply copy us, oblivious to the hundreds of years of political freedom, restrained government, and capitalism that set the conditions necessary for the inventive and creative processes that spawned our current wealth and scientific knowledge engineering know-how and business acumen necessary for the entire world to benefit from its efforts. We're going to take a little break here and we'll continue on the other side with some examples of how this thin veneer is very fragile. Mm -hmm. 
Nikita Khrushchev says, in this world today, there's a fierce struggle of two ideologies, the communist and the capitalist. And in this struggle, there can be no neutrals. Whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. In the 1950s, the United States had a massive security failure. Soviet intelligence stole the techniques for the making of the atomic and hydrogen bombs. The beast now possessed weapons of mass destruction. This barren desert in a remote corner of Utah is the site of a unique experiment. For one week, it's standing in for the surface of the moon, complete with mock-up moon base. This is the Moon Society, a collection of scientists and space enthusiasts who are already preparing for a commercial mission to the moon. Their aim is to establish not just a human colony on the moon, but a full-scale industrial complex. So they spend their days in the Utah desert testing out the technology that could one day be part of their mission to the moon. Yeah, I think you always start with kind of a thought experiment. What would it be like to go to the moon? Or what would it be like to live on the moon? What would it be like to work on the moon? And then you take it to paper and you start making drawings. And then you take it to the next step and eventually you get to a, a life-sized prototype and you try to make things more and more realistic as time goes on that, so that you can flesh out the problems that you need to address in order to get there. So the more realism you can introduce, the more of your homework you can do ahead of time to make sure that the mission is successful. And as they trundle around practicing being on the moon, they can't help but dream. Well, people on the moon would be involved in using resources uh, to start manufacturing. First of all, they want to manufacture as much of their own raw ma uh, building materials and other things that they need. Anything they manufacture there will be cheaper than it is to bring up from Earth's surface. Others are less ambitious than the Moon Society. For some, the Moon represents a straightforward commercial opportunity. We started out as a group of engineers and space enthusiasts, got together online and posed ourselves the challenge of what is the lowest cost but commercially viable lunar mission that we could come up with. We came up with the Trailblazer mission. Unlike the Moon Society, Trailblazer have at least found a rocket to take them to the moon, although not an entirely conventional one. The, uh, a launch vehicle is a converted SS-18 Satan ICBM. That's a Cold War nuclear missile. They essentially take the missile out of the launch silo, remove the warhead, recondition the payload bay to accommodate commercial payloads. But these commercial payloads do not include people. Instead, the converted missile will deliver much cheaper and lighter items to the surface of the moon. The going rate for cargo is $1,000 a gram, uh, including handling and packaging and 
delivery to the lunar surface. But the big prize is still to get a person back to the moon. And there is one private sector challenge to NASA's moon monopoly that might just succeed. Government always plays a big role in getting things started. But after a while, um, you know, the citizenry has to take over. I mean, a after all, you know, the, the world and the universe belongs to all of us. It's not just individual governments. So I think you're starting to see that now. Greg Olson has already been to space, but he's not an astronaut and he's never worked for NASA. He's a businessman. Last year, he paid $20 million for a week-long trip to the International Space Station. I, I know with my space flight, the money I thought about for five minutes, and it was a simple yes or no decision. And once I made the decision, I never thought about the money. Olsen is one of the new breed of explorers, the space tourists who are prepared to spend millions of dollars to fulfill a lifelong dream. And now there's a company who aim to make their dreams come true. They've already sent three people into space, and now they're adding a new destination to their brochure. It gives me great pleasure to be here today to talk to you, because today is a historic day. Space Adventures is going to the moon. The moon mission is open to the public, meaning anyone who has the financial capability to afford the price of the seats. They're each priced at $100 million. At the front of the queue is Greg Olson. Oh, I mean, who wouldn't want to see the moon up close? Um, you know, you may not want to go through the space ride to get there, but I mean, just, just imagine if you could look out and there's the moon. There's this big moon, the, the way we're looking at the Earth now. Um, just, to me, it would be mind-boggling. Yeah, I'd really like to do it. And the company thinks there'll be no shortage of takers. You really don't have to sell a moon mission. It's, it's making history. It's going where less than 30 people have gone before. You really don't need a sales tactic for that. In a neat twist from the Cold War rivalry of the 1960s, the company works in partnership with the Russian Space Agency. Rich clients provide the funds, and the cash-strapped Russians provide the hardware. And it's technology straight out of the 1960s, the Soyuz rocket system. The Soyuz rocket system was first designed in the 1960s for the Soviet lunar program. Once the um, Americans landed on the moon, the Soviet um, lunar program was almost just abandoned. But one of the reasons why it was abandoned was that the Soviet manned lunar program of the 1960s was a failure. Not only did they fail to get a man on the moon, but they also failed even to put a man into orbit around the moon, despite 18 attempts to make the technology work. They hope that the cash injection from the rich Westerners will help them do better this time. Hey, Bob, could you imagine the first Saudi Arabian woman pilot of a spaceship when right today they uh, have to live in a sack and can't even drive a car? That'll be a day to look forward to. <laughs> I'll tell you, I was just thinking about going to the moon. Would I get car sick? <laughs> I think I would. I think I would, too, but I'd still love to do it. So here we sit, Bob, you and I, in the most industrious province in one of the freest countries in the West, and yet every day it seems like we're living in the uncivilized parts of the world. We have no right to feel smug about our situation here as the once great West is now falling back into its 
own tribalistic, brutal, and ignorant past. The cause? The cause is always philosophy, ideas. We can blame such intellectually uh, dim luminaries such as Plato, Immanuel Kant, Karl Marx, Leon Trotsky, John Dewey, or more recently, Noam Chomsky, Maude Barlow, Naomi Klein, or Warren Kinsella. Hmm, and their angle. ilk for the hmm. decline in prosperity and the rise of violence we're seeing all around us. Secondary to the philosophers of our time, we can blame the politicians who follow their philosophical pap, Tim Hudak, Dalton McGinty. Uh, oh, that was a shudder, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea Horvath here in Ontario, and Bob Ray, Thomas Mulcair, and Stephen Harper federally. And each and every leader of every country in the world, every one of them, without exception, has demonstrated their ignorance of what's necessary, philosophically, to maintain what we know to be civilization. Politically, there are two requirements for civilization. Objective laws and the enforcement of those laws. As to how our laws are either objective or capricious, I'll leave for another time. What's more paramount and evident is the enforcement of the rule of law in our country and province. And here's just a few examples of recent local events which illustrate the lack of enforcement of the more basic laws of civilization, laws which all but the most libertine of us can agree upon. The Occupy Movement, where hordes of shiftless second-handers break trespass laws screaming for unearned entitlements while the police sit idly by. The race-based policing of the OPP in Caledonia, where Aboriginal thugs steal, destroy, assault, and maim with impunity, while a white man, Gary McHale, who wishes to walk down a public street with a Canadian flag in silent, peaceful protest, is arrested. The black bloc tactics of the G20 protesters in Toronto, setting light to police cars as the police watch, unmoving. It was even speculated that the police did nothing in order to pr pr provide proof for the billions-dollar price tag for their presence. And the same police at the same G20 protests, arresting innocent men and women walking by, minding their own business, while hooded thugs smashed windows, vandalized, and stole with impunity. The student it didn't riots, seem too staged to be real to me. I don't know. <laughs> I think that, there, that was, there was a certain amount of uh, contrivance there, I think. Think of the student riots in, uh, riots in Quebec in the past few months over tuition increases. Even though Quebec has the lowest tuition in all the country, the entitlement philosophy of these people is apparent, as is their lack of civility. By the way, I think the police in Quebec handle it a lot better than the police in Ontario, because they did make some arrests there. The tasering deaths of unarmed civilians by police. For example, Robert Jasansky. The Fleming Street riots, not blocks from here, where thousands, a thousand rioters destroyed property and burnt a CTV news vehicle while police stood idly by, relying on YouTube videos to make arrests many months later. The idle no more illegal protests where the OPP actually participated in it rather than carry out the court order to break up the protests. Again, in London, last year, about 30 police moved in on about 250 peaceful pot prohibition protesters and made arrests. Police, commanded by the same chief whose forces watched as hundreds of drunkards trashed property near Fanshawe College in the city. Why the difference? 
The 420 celebration was peaceful, while the college riot was violent. So the police decided to arrest the peaceful people rather than the violent ones. You La- were aware the fruit is hanging low, as they say. Yes, indeed, yeah. Very cowardly. Last year's Rich- London Richmond Row murder. A young man was sucker-punched and killed on the popular bar strip here in London, where every night at 2 a.m., like clockwork, several hundreds of drunken revelers pour out of the bars with very little police presence. They might get hurt, I guess. The police, that is. The list of the failure of the police to enforce our laws is getting longer. The result of a course of inevitable anarchy, more riots and violence, and the creeping downfall of our civilization. Oh, we may still have our technological goodies, Bob. We all enjoy, like the internet and iPods and cars and warm houses. But what are such things if the police can arrest or even kill innocent or peaceful people while ignoring violent thugs, leaving them to terrorize communities? We need to reclaim our heritage of individual freedom, which was born in the West, but is every man's birthright, regardless of where he lives in this world. We need to teach our children of the rich history of reason and freedom our ancestors seemed to take for granted. And that's probably the problem. We took it for granted. We need a philosophical and political revolution. We need leaders who understand where we've been and where we should be going. Without such action, there's little doubt that if we let the current evil people who are in control of our governments and schools and universities, continue to spew their hate-filled, misanthropic lies, then we'll end up just like the world's worst uncivilized countries, civilized in appearance only, while in reality we all become barbarians. And if the countries fell, all the countries in the world fell, to Marxism and altruism and egalitarianism, then even that thin veneer of civility will crumble until we all revert to the animalistic, subhuman state which is inevitable when even ign- whenever ignorance prevails over reason. And I guess at that particular time, Warren Kinsella would have won. <laughs> if he hasn't already, maybe that's why we're heading to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> Start over again. Maybe that's where the place... You know, it's always been pioneers that that started every new wave of what we would call freedom. Because it takes so much effort and work to undo all those past... um, Accomplishments. Not accomplishments, but traditions and, 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 you know, things that are just ingrained into the whole culture. That's why you can't change a culture overnight. No, you have to get the kids in school. It has to to take generations. It takes generations, yeah. Any real change takes place. And it happens in the schools. That's right. Well, that's it for another week, Robert. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Adulis for sitting in for Ed today. And we're gone for another week. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. You know who thinks we're really fat is Europeans. They think we're just gigantic. And it's weird because you go to these random European countries and they have all these really strong opinions about Americans and we have no opinions about their entire country at all. Like, we don't even know anything about them. I was in Sweden, and this guy in Sweden goes, well, we say Americans are fat and lazy. What do you say about us? Uh, that you're Vikings? <laughs> uh, do you guys still do that with the boats and the cute little hats? Because that's, 
Your country sucks, bro. I'm sorry, but...